We're going to be discussing a fascinating and engrossing novel called Catch Us When We Fall. It is a story of, among other things, alcoholism and addiction and about hard-fought redemption or the struggle for recovery and redemption. And at the heart of it are two incredibly fascinating characters, deeply flawed but good people trying to make their way through a a plethora of of challenges and and difficulties. The author of this novel, Catch Us When We Fall, is Juliette Fay, who is the author of five novels, including The Tumbling Turner Sisters, Shelter Me, and City of Flickering Light. And uh, I am so excited that we can speak about this novel, which is published by William Morrow, uh, a novel that uh, even aside from the story itself brings to mind uh, all kinds of important questions about what it means to be an alcoholic, what it means to live with painful addiction, and uh, what the road uh, out of such addiction might possibly look like. And actually, the many roads, the many pathways that there are, as well as uh, the many stumbling blocks and pits that can land uh, someone right back where they started. Uh, it's an incredibly interesting book, and I loved every page, and I'm so excited now to be able to speak with its author, uh, Juliet Fay. Juliet Fay, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Greg, thanks so much for inviting me. Uh, ahead of us talking about the novel, uh, I would love to hear a little bit about uh, what drew you into the world of of writing, if this is something that began very early in life for you, and uh, if for a long time this was your highest professional aspiration. <laughs> you know, Mike, uh, I'm sorry, Greg. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I always had stories going in my head, you know, from, from the time I, I can remember. And it was always my, my favorite way to combat boredom was to sort of make up stories you know, to see something or someone and think, hmm, I wonder if or what if. Um, so it's it's always been something that um, that's been with me. And yet, I I never thought about being a writer as a kid. I didn't know any writers. I didn't really know what that path looked like. And so, you know, I I wasn't an English major in college, but I read voraciously, and I <clears throat> always had those stories running in my head. Hmm. And um, in fact, one day, um, my little four-year-old was sitting in the back of the minivan, and he suddenly said to me, uh, Mom, have you seen Shrek 5? And I said, no, honey, I, I don't think that's out. And he said, it, I've seen it. It's playing in my head. <laughs> and, I, and I thought, oh, he's got Mommy's little DVD player in his brain, you know. So um, so it's always something that I and, I, and I did think that one day, maybe when I retired and the kids were grown and all of that, that I would write the book. Um, but I, I didn't think it would be sort of a career for me. I just hoped that I could take one of these stories and sort of give it a beginning, middle, and end, and maybe if it wasn't terrible, I would let my friends see it. Um, so I, I, a neighbor was having a book swap, and she was trying to get, get rid of books at the end, and she gave me a book to read, and, um, and it was just terrible. It was awful. Um, she said, "Oh, here, take it. It's a, it's a beach read." And I and I took it, and I I couldn't stop reading it because I was fascinated by its badness. <laughs> it was it was just 
I kept, yeah, I was like yelling at the book, like, you know, people don't talk like that and this would never happen. And, uh, but it had sort of an interesting premise, um, which started with two people trapped in an elevator. And I thought, as my brain is wont to do, who would I put in that elevator? So I started cooking up yet another story. And, and it was the first time that I really sort of focused on writing it down. And, um, and I found that it was so, it was just so enjoyable to me to try and figure out where these characters were going. And I, you know, when I talk to high school students about writing, I, I say, you know, it's kind of like getting to kiss your crush. Um, it's, it's, you know, that sort of um, excited feeling to sit down and, and, and pull a story together. So I really only started doing it um, sort of as a hobby, um, you know, after a 20-year career in human services. And, um, and then, you know, once I, I completed the book and I let a few friends read it, they were like, you know, this is really publishable. And, and that's what sort of led me into publishing. Hmm. So I don't have an MFA in creative writing. It wasn't, you know, my life's goal to become a published author. Um, but I'm, I'm really, I'm really glad that I stumbled into it. <laughs> As are we who uh, enjoy your novel so much, including this most recent one, Catch Us When We Fall. Uh, at the very end of the book is a really interesting essay, uh, which is titled Writing Catch Us When We Fall, A Fluid Process. And in this essay that you kind of talk about the, the germ of an idea from which this entire novel ultimately sprang, you say at one point, there's a saying that there are two kinds of writers, plotters and pantsers. The former, right. plotters, plan everything out. They make charts and lists and storyboards. They know every character and plot thread and how it all weaves together. They know the ending. The latter, the pantsers, P-A-N-T-S-E-R-S, uh, no surprise, fly by the seat of their pants. They may not know anything other than Josie's going out for sushi and let it roll on from there. So explain where you fall between those two poles of plotters sure. and pensers. Um, so I usually, I'm kind of right in the middle. Um, I really like to know, um, I, you know, I, I sit down, when I have an idea for a book, I sort of sit down and sort of sketch out, you know, what is the, what is the overall arc of the story? Where do we think we're going? What are some of the landmarks along the way? How do I see things fitting together? who are the main characters and maybe some of the secondary characters. I come up with names. I spend a, a silly amount of time looking at names and thinking, you know, how does it sound and what does it mean? These are things that readers will never really know, but I care about. So, um, but I don't, one of the things that I like is that I don't plan every little um, thing out because I, I do like to kind of be surprised a little bit. And I know this sounds kooky, but most writers I know have that experience of, you know, you're writing a scene and you think it's going to go one way and, and what you sort of hear and see in your head goes in a different direction. And it's a surprise. And it's often better than what you had in mind. Um, so I like to sort of leave room for my characters to surprise me a little bit. Um, so I would say I'm in the middle. You know, the crazy thing with Catch Us When We Fall was that um, it, it took me by surprise. I um, was writing another book. I was in the middle of another project. And um, I woke up one morning sort of you know, just just in that sort of post-dream state that we all feel when we wake up in the morning. And, um, and there was an image in my head of, of two people at a graveside service, two mourners, only two. 
And the woman was drunk and the man was furious. And I, you know, most people get up and go about their day. Writers will sit there and say, well, who are those people? And why is she drunk? And why is he so mad? And so I sat there sort of thinking about that. And I, and I, but I, you know, but I gave myself a little talking to, like, don't get distracted. You have this other thing to do. Like, don't, you know, okay. Um, and then uh, I couldn't stop thinking about these two. I couldn't stop. So I thought, well, I got to, I got to clear the decks here. I got to, I got to move these people out. So I'm going to write one chapter get it down, put it aside. Maybe I'll come back to it. Maybe I won't. Quickly named them Cass and Scott. Um, you know, no thought about the names. Um, quickly made him a baseball player. And I thought, well, I probably, probably would change that later. Um, and, and I wrote the chapter and I went back to business. Um, but I couldn't stop thinking about them. And there was a point at which I had to have a little sit down with myself and say, you are not going back to that other project. Like, these are the people you're interested in right now. So I didn't do all that prep. Um, and so I had to sort of scurry to, to do, you know, the research that any good book requires to sort of really make sure you get it right. Um, so that's, that's kind of how that, that, that ended me on the, more of the pantser end of the scale. Right. Uh, is that something that happens fairly often to you that is you suddenly get what amounts to I called it earlier a germ of an idea I mean something just not even a full scene just kind of an image of a character or two from which one might or might not choose to spin an entire story does that happen a lot to you It, it happens pretty often really Greg, it happens a lot. And I, you know, and there are 10, 10 little germs that I, you know, walk by and, and never do anything about. And then one that really, that really sticks. You know, the thing about writing a novel is you, it, it's one project that you're going to work on for a year or two or 10. You have to really be excited about this subject matter and these characters because you're going to live with them for a long time. So, Sometimes I think, oh, that's kind of interesting, and I wait to see if it's going to grab me. And if it doesn't, then I move on. But, yeah, I, I, you know, I think when you're a writer, you sort of train your brain to look for those things. We're all seeing little stories all the time, but it's my job to pay attention and, and to capture it and, and see if it's going to be the start of a novel. One other overarching question before we dig into the novel itself, Catch Us When We Fall. Uh, at the very outset of the book, uh, I guess this would be the, the dedication. You dedicate this book to my writers group, uh, Randy, Susan Myers, E.B. Moore, Kathy Crowley, and Nicole Benier, whose kind but honest literary insights are surpassed only by their kindness and honesty mm-hmm. as friends. I was really struck by the juxtaposition of those two words, kindness and honesty twice in the space of that dedication. And it just kind of mm-hmm. got me thinking about that combination of, of qualities, which we don't always think of. <laughs> I mean, sometimes it seems like the kindest thing you can do is not be <laughs> fully honest with somebody. Sure. But in a sense, the, the way you phrase that makes it seem like for you, they are really tied up with one another and they are both really important to have in one's friends and in those who uh, are, in a sense, literary peers offering their, their, their comments and critiques to you. Can you talk about that combination? 
Sure. That's, that's so lovely that you brought that up, Greg. Um, I, um, I, I do feel like true friendship really requires honesty. And, you know, maybe mm-hmm. I'm not going to tell you that I don't like your haircut. But, you know, about important things, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and be honest. You know, if I think you're going in the wrong direction and you ask me my opinion, I'm <clears throat> I'm not going to just say, oh, yeah, everything's fine. Um, in a writing community, you're relying on those on those folks not to, you know, beat you to a pulp because it's, it's you know, it's a it's a piece of art. You know, writing is art and and it's something that you are you know creating and that, you know, sort of feels personal. So you don't want them to, you know completely beat you up but you really need them to say like hey this part it's not working or it's this i got a little bored here or i don't really understand this so what i love about this group is that they they do not pull their punches they they are going to tell me really where and we you know we all tell each other where things need some work um but we do it with kindness and we and we have really learned to trust each other and you know trust is such an important part of any relationship um and uh, professionally to, to know that I can, can rely on these guys to really be honest, but also not, you know, not make me want to crawl in a hole and never, <laughs> never write again. <laughs> I would never send anything out without, without showing it to them first and getting their opinions first. We're speaking and they with become lovely friends, lovely that, friends. That's great. We're speaking with Juliet Fay, best-selling author, whose latest novel is called Catch Us When We Fall. Uh, the germ of this novel, the central idea, that image that uh, came to you is, is really where it begins at the top of chapter one with two people okay. at, at a graveside, a woman named Cass and a man uh, named Scotty. And uh, tell us what uh, we need to know at the outset uh, of, of this story in terms of these two people and why they are there. And uh, and who is lying in the ground, lifeless? Um, so Cass Macklin is the main character of the story. She's in her late twenties, and she's had a pretty tough childhood. Um, she, when she met Ben Ben McGreevy, she thought, "Okay, this is this is really somebody I want to spend my life with." He's just, you know, he was a, a wonderful boyfriend to her, and um, they spent their twenties really kind of partying and having a good time. Um, but it really crept slowly and surely toward addiction. So by the end, they were in pretty tough shape. They were both alcoholics. And in fact, Ben, who is the one whose casket is being lowered into the ground, has died of alcohol poisoning. So she, Cass is completely bereft, and that's why she's drunk, um, although she's drunk every day. Um, and also, you know, she's broke, and she's barely hanging on to a, a pretty bad job and she doesn't know what to do next. It's, life is looking pretty bleak and she finds out she's pregnant. Um, and this is the point at which she says, okay, now's the time. Um, and I think that happens to all of us for, for various reasons. We're, we're going along sort of in the wrong direction on something, a, a minor matter or a major one. And we say, okay, time for a course correction. So, she decides she wants to keep this baby. She wants to have a healthy baby. She wants to be a good mom. She knows she's got to get sober, but she really has no resources. She doesn't even know anyone who's sober, um, except for Ben's brother, Scott, who, you know, she grew up with. Um, he's a third baseman for the Red Sox. 
Um, and Cass and Scott don't have any great love for each other. Um, you know, Scotty's spent a lot of time cleaning up their alcohol-fueled messes, and um, and Cass doesn't really trust him, doesn't really like him, thinks he's, you know, kind of big on himself because he's an athlete. Um, but the two of them have this um, this one thing in common, that they both are invested in, in trying to get this kid into the world safely. So they, they agree to, to work together on it, and he agrees to send her to rehab and even let her live with him briefly until she can get on her feet um, with one caveat, and that is the minute she drinks, she's out. Mm. Um, so that's that's the premise of the story. You were saying earlier that it began with just that sort of snapshot scene, and uh, and we get a sense from what we were talking about earlier that you really had at the outset no idea about how all of this was going to end. Is that really literally true? And I don't mean to sound like I doubt you, but I just I just want to be really clear that uh, that that in fact you really had no idea how this ultimately would end, and if it would end happily or tragically or some mix of the two. Uh, I mean, you you really did not know anything about the ultimate destination? Well, you know, that was really the first thing I had to figure out. Because the first thing you need to know is the arc of the story. Like, what general direction are we heading here? And, uh, you know, I'm going to be honest, Greg, I don't really love novels that end with everybody dead or in jail at the end. I'm just not. I need some redemption. I need some hope. Um, And I knew it would be a real, I knew it would be a struggle. I knew that Cass was going to go through some stuff. And I also knew that Scotty's going to go through some stuff. I mean, he's got his own demons. He's got his own struggles. Um, ones he's not really looking at. He's just, you know, focusing his his addiction, if you will, to use the, the term loosely, is baseball. And he's been sort of hiding from his own troubles by just playing baseball. Um, so I wanted them to learn some things. I mean, to me, that's that's important in the story, that people people learn and they and they figure out how to at least address what they're what they're facing. Hmm. So I knew that I would not have her lying in a gutter by the by the end of the story. Um, but I had to figure out sort of what was going to happen to her along the way, and I knew it would not be easy because the disease of alcoholism is not an easy one, hmm. um, which I know from you know from those close to me. Um, so I had to sort of figure out what's the general way this story is going to go and then sort of fill in from there. So I was scrambling to come up with what the plot threads were and who the other characters were going to be as I wrote. Hmm. But I found that the story was so compelling to me in my writer's brain that I was writing very fast. And then I would, you know, be like, okay, no, I got to research this or I need to, you know, you know, find out more about that. What's it like to be a baseball player? Like, I have no idea. Well, I didn't have any idea. So I, you know, had to, that was really fun research, actually. Spent a lot of time at Fenway Park. Mm-hmm. Um, so I I quickly had to figure out. But no, that morning, lying there in bed looking at these two people, I didn't know what was going to happen. Wow. Let's talk about the real-life experience that you have uh, with alcoholism. Uh, not you yourself, at least as far as I know, but... but but people close to you, including very close family members, uh, have mm-hmm. grappled with alcoholism, and I'm sure in some very, very painful ways. 
Um, tell us more about the sort of real life understanding that you have about alcoholism and its consequences and and the way in which it can take control of of, of one's life. Um, so I have a number of friends and family members who um, are are mostly in recovery, which is a good thing. Um, but also my dad um, has been in recovery for 30 years, uh, but he was drinking when I was growing up, and and that was not always easy. Um, that was that was kind of a rough thing. Um, but I found that just as as his drinking impacted me as a child, his recovery also really impacted me. Even though I was an adult by that time, I was a young adult, and I wasn't you know living with him anymore. Um, sort of seeing him come out of the fog. Um, of alcoholism. He, he started going to AA, Alcoholics Anonymous. He got very involved. He became a sponsor. He led groups. Um, and it was very meaningful to him. It really did help him. Um, he never relapsed. Um, and, um, and that was fascinating to me. Um, it was, you know, so heartening. It was such a great role model to me. Um, what, it, what it said to me was, even if you have a really hard problem, like alcoholism, you can do something about it, and you can reach out for help. Um, so, you know, I went to a couple of AA meetings myself um, just to sort of see what it, what it was like and what his, what his experience was there. And, you know, I kind of expected them to be kind of gloom and doom and really remorseful and sad and depressing. And, and you know, there's a bit of that, but also um, it's just there's a lot of gratitude and joy um, that, you that you know, if you're struggling with alcoholism, you, you have somewhere to turn and you have people to talk to who understand. Um, so I actually found, excuse me, I found that I personally got a lot out of, of going. Um, you know, there's plenty that AA has to offer people who are not alcoholics, Hmm. like the serenity prayer, which is, you know, personally very meaningful to me. And that is, um, the courage to change the things you can, the serenity to accept the things you can't, and the and the wisdom to know the difference. That's been very meaningful to me in my life. So um, that's you know, and talking to my friends, you know, women who are moms who who um, you know struggle with the disease and what it feels like. I really wanted to to talk about what it feels like to be in the skin of somebody who is who is dealing with this disease. Um, and to get it right, if I could. I felt like I learned so much about what it would be like to live the kind of life that that Cass Macklin lived for so many years. I mean, as I mean, as a drunk. I mean, to put it in the most sort of unvarnished terms, and sure. uh, and to understand the the way in which life looks when that is your life. At one point, and this is relatively late in the book, as she is looking back, uh, you have Cass saying or thinking, I can see, looking back, what an awful waste it was, useless and Mm. ugly. Um, Mm -hmm. Tell us more about what is wrapped up in those those simple words. Well, I think that I think that anytime we struggle with something for a long time and we finally figure it out and we finally get to the other side or get further along, you know, and in recovery, you never say you're not an alcoholic anymore. You still have that problem that you're dealing with it. 
I think we look back sometimes and we think, gosh, I wasted a lot of time being unhappy or being in a, in a, in a bad situation or being, um, or doing something that was really harmful to me and other people. Um, and she feels like as much as she loved her time with Ben, um, she can see now that she could have, she could have done more and she could have, she could have been happier. One of the things I learned about alcoholism that's so interesting to me is um, when you're really addicted, um, your, your, your maturation sort of goes on pause, you know, cause you're, you're not, your brain isn't in a, in a space to really learn a whole lot and to sort of personally grow. And especially in your twenties, there's so much growth to be done. Um, so she realizes looking back that she missed all that growing time and she has to sort of hurry to catch up to learn the things that, you know, that you need to know to be an adult. Hmm. Um, so I think she's, um, regretful that she didn't didn't get there sooner. And, you know, in the story, you learn that she tried, but she she wasn't really able to make it stick. Right. Um, this, so. this life that she has with Ben, Ben McCreevy, who, again, is, uh, as the novel begins, he has died of alcohol poisoning. And bit by bit, we learn more about the, the life that they had, which ultimately led to really painful ruin for, 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 for both of them. But I think you really help us understand why Cass, at least in the moment, enjoyed that life and enjoyed Ben for all of the ways in mm-hmm. which he led her down the very much the wrong path. At one point you have Cass in thinking about Ben saying that he had softened the harshest edges of their existence. That is, mm. what they experienced together, for as awful as it was in so many ways, uh, Ben had a way of making it better or not not feel so bad. Tell us more about this aspect of who Ben McCreevy is, someone who is never alive through the course of the novel, but nevertheless is a, a very vivid presence. Mm. Um, you know, I think... I think Ben really loved her and she really loved him. And I think love, feeling loved by someone, feeling cared about, um, really mitigates a lot. I think, you know, it's so much easier to face any problem if you feel like people love and support you. Um, And even though they weren't really facing their problems, they were facing other problems as a result of their alcoholism, like their constantly being broke and you know, sort of hopscotching from place to place to live and not being really able to hold down jobs, they loved each other. And I think love is can be a real mitigating factor. Mm. Um, and he did love her, but his he, he did not support her when she tried to get off, you know, the booze. Um, there were ways, and she has to face this too, that he helped her back. Mm. And Scotty, his younger brother, whom whom she turns to, is little by little sort of reveals what he knows about that, that he saw that his brother, whom he loved, was holding her back mm-hmm. from, from living a, a healthier life. Um, and so in loving Ben, she also has to become, be honest with herself about the fact that as much as he loved her, he was not always good for her. One of the, that's a hard realization. Of course. One of the choices you make in shaping the character of Ben is that you make him 
brilliant. Uh, I mean, intellectually <laughs> brilliant and creative. Uh, but you also say at one point he was too smart to live a smart life. Uh, tell us more about why you thought it would be. I mean, I think it's a wonderful choice, but tell us more about why you thought it was interesting to make Ben more than just a, a hopeless drunk, but to make him someone who was intellectually and creatively brilliant. That's such an interesting question, Greg. Um, I think really what I wanted to say was, um, and there's a there's a place in the novel where Cass is describing, you know, why she looks different from somebody else who's an alcoholic. She says, you know, alcoholics come in a variety pack. We're all different flavors. <laughs> I think one of the things I wanted to say was, you can be really smart and still be subject to this disease. You you know, it's not a matter of intelligence. It's not a matter. It's not always a matter of willpower. It's really, it's a disease that grips you and you have to, you know, fight it in whatever ways you can. The way you fight it isn't necessarily intellectually. Um, he was a very smart guy, and that was one of the things that made him so interesting and, and you know, Cass really admired about him. Um, but that didn't mean that he didn't, you know, succumb to this disease. And there's plenty of brilliant people who are alcoholics or addicted to something. Um, so, you know, I... There are also some some minor characters in the book who, not so minor, but not the main characters, who are also alcoholics, and they are they are also different from Cass. You know, people she meets, um, people she knows, and um, I wanted to sort of one of the things that I saw at Alcoholics Anonymous Anonymous meetings was that sort of all walks of lifeness. You know, mm. it used to be, you know wealthy and highly educated and, you know, or you could be uh, incredibly successful in other areas of your life um, and still need to go to AA. Right. So, um, I, and, and that's okay. <laughs> that's fine. You know? Um, so I think sometimes, and, and Ben was a guy with a lot of pride, a lot of intellectual pride, and it got in his way. You know, he sort of poo-pooed AA or other alcoholics, you know, anonymous type of programs. There are other programs other than AA. AA is probably the most widely known and the one I'm most familiar with. Um, he kind of poo-pooed it, you know, because he was he was sort of smarter than that. Mm. And that was that was a big that was a big mistake on his part. Right. You know, there are a couple of of moments that are, are I think, so insightful about what it is like to live this life and how and why someone might not want to ever leave or why they might so easily be pulled right back into it. One of my favorite moments is when when a character is reflecting on, on what life is like when you are seriously inebriated and uh, you think you're so sparkly and fascinating when it's you, but my God, it's just unbelievably boring. That is when you're looking at somebody else and uh, who who is who is in this state, and you realize that I mean, when you when you are inebriated, you are the worst possible judge of how interesting you're being, or how <laughs> charming, and so on. When in fact, uh, typically yeah. you're you're being anything anything but. Uh, but what right. I wanted to ask you more specifically about was one of these ancillary characters, who's an important part of Cass's life, who at one point uh, uh, in the novel. I guess is the term falls off the wagon. I mean, goes back mm -hmm. to drinking after 
uh, a period of sobriety. And in the moment that you describe this, uh, you have this character taking her first big swig of alcohol and everything loosened. That is all the tension that she was feeling in desperately wanting to remain sober by taking that first drink, everything loosened. I think I've never before understood the allure of a drink for somebody who is desperate to remain sober. Uh, that uh-huh. idea that, that, <laughs> that you take that drink, everything loosens, everything will feel better. Uh, I right. suspect that that's probably at the heart of, of, of the relapses that we hear so much about. Well, I think that when you don't have to, you know, this is, I know that the, the scene you're talking about, and she's in a social situation where she's uncomfortable. And if your go-to for dealing with discomfort is to make it go away, to sort of pull a veil down over your feelings with alcohol, it's really easy to slip into that. Um, and I think one of the things that I, I certainly have seen in my my own experience of the alcoholics in my life, whom I love, is anxiety. And it's a real quick solution, a bad solution, but a quick one for anxiety or fear or shame. You know, there's a lot of shame that attends being an addict. And how do you manage that shame? Well, you can get away from it pretty quick if you do, you know, if you drink. Mm. Um I do want to say one thing, Greg, that you brought up uh, about how, you know, when it's you, it feels all sparkling and fun. And when it's not you, you see how boring it is. I was a cocktail waitress after college. And I will admit that even though my father was an alcoholic, I drank plenty in in college thinking, I don't know. And I really, I kind of understand that now. I look back and I think, how could I have been so dumb to drink as much as I did in college, um, knowing my family history? And it's just you never think it's going to be you. And I think that's also true, that people become alcoholics. They don't see it happening. They just don't think it's going to happen to them. So I was a cocktail waitress, and it was the first time in my young life that I was with people who were drinking, and I was not drinking. And I saw how ugly it was and how, you know, people who really got sloppy, that's not attractive. And I think really it was my own vanity that made me curtail my drinking because I saw for the first time how not sparkling it was, you Hmm. know, when somebody's really bombed. Hmm. So um, that was a funny thing that you brought that up. Yeah. So it's probably would be one of the best ways that a lot of people could gain insight. You know, the cost of alcoholism is for them to be able to view it in the way that, that, that you did. In, yeah. in terms of the difficult path to sobriety and maintaining sobriety, uh, besides just, you know, what's sort of going on biologically in the brain um, mm-hmm. and that voice in one's head that sort of calls, uh, uh, calls you back to, you know, what you miss, you know, there, there are other stumbling blocks that I think a lot of us would never stop to think about. Um, it's, it's something, for instance, as simple as the forms that Cass has to fill out as at a health clinic where she's going to finally get some, some health care and, and, and be looked at. And she's filling out these forms that just tell her 
how broke she is. I mean, you know, in all yeah. of the ways that she had. And, you know, I think most of us would never stop to think about what what that would feel like to be in that in that position. But beyond that, your book at several points deals with the trust issues that somebody mm-hmm. on the road back to recovery or back to sobriety has to confront again and again and again. Um, explain to our listeners what I'm talking about, how trust can be such a difficult concept uh, for somebody who finds themselves uh, in the midst of this difficulty. Sure. Um, so, you know, in, in terms of, of evoking the trust of others, as an alcoholic, you're, you're letting yourself down quite a lot, but you're also letting other people down. And so, you know, you, you want to show up at the, at the christening or the barbecue or whatever, but you're too hungover or you're already half in the bag. And, and um, one of the things I learned was there was a lot of lying involved um, of saying that you were fine or saying you were somewhere else or coming up with excuses for your, for your drinking um, that weren't really true. And little by little, people, people figure that out. Um, and so you become somebody who's, who's not reliable. Um, and, you know, certainly Scott and Cass went through that when she was, when she was drinking, you know, he was always cleaning up the messes for them. Um, and he wanted, you know, he loved his brother, but he didn't, he didn't want to be in that position. So certainly when she comes to him and says, okay, I'm going to take you up on your offer to send me to rehab, he's like, "Mm, okay, but he doesn't have much faith that, um, that things will go well, um, because Things have gone so not well for years. Um, but I also think that as an alcoholic, sometimes trust, you know, for, for an alcoholic, trusting others can be hard mm-hmm. because, um, you know, Cass, you know, certainly has trust issues from the beginning. She lost her, her mother at a young age and she, you know, was in foster care and, and she really learned not to trust people. Um, and that really puts you at a disadvantage, I think. If you, if you feel like you have no one you can trust, um, why not drink? Right. Why not do whatever, <laughs> whatever you know, comes into your head to do? Um, because, you know, the world looks so much bleaker and is bleaker if you don't feel like you have somebody you can trust. Absolutely. And she had been, but he was, he was promoting a lifestyle that was not healthy for her. Yeah. So. As for sobriety... Uh, it's interesting to 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 realize that when one becomes sober, it's it's not like the clouds part and the sun is shining and the angels are singing. It's it can be in its in and of itself difficult. Um, at one point, you oh, you talk sure. about the high beam of sobriety. That is, when one is sober, you are suddenly seeing things so clearly, including the wreckage of your own life, uh, right. which might be in the past or might even still be very much in the present. And, of course, in the state where you are inebriated, uh, you are not seeing that with yeah. nearly the same kind of clarity. And that's also the kind of uh, reality that that, uh, that those of us from the outside looking in would, would never understand. Well, I think, you know, I think you make a good point, Greg, but I also think that we all have things sometimes we don't want to look at. 
Yeah. Um, <laughs> and we may not be drinking to avoid those things we don't want to look at, but we may be doing other things. We may be, you know, working too much, or we may be, um, you know, have certain activities that we love to do. You know, we may be playing golf four times a, a, a week. Some people wouldn't think that's such a terrible thing. I mean, there are there are there are pro-social ways to manage, and there are, there are more anti-social ways to manage. You know, if you if you know working a lot can really be make you successful and earn a lot of money and you know all those good things but you're still avoiding a problem that you're not dealing with absolutely Um, i i only bring it up because this is a side of sobriety that i think most of us don't realize that when you become sober you also have this clarity that can be in a sense really difficult to live with yeah, it's like, you know, you're sort of walking through life with dark lenses on, and suddenly you have to take those off and see everything that's going on. Um, one of the things I remember talking to uh, with a friend of mine who's a mom, she said, um, you know, I, life, you know, was suddenly a lot more boring. You know, like there was no drink at the end of the day. There was no, you know, there was, I had to learn, I had to reteach myself to enjoy what was in front of me. And that was not going to include alcohol. And I also had to learn how to deal with all the irritations, the little irritations that we all deal with all day long. You know, somebody's whatever, being difficult or something doesn't go right. And you no longer have that, you know, free path to not deal with that little irritation. You got to deal with all the little stuff as well as the big stuff. (laughs) And I think sometimes that surprises alcoholics, like all the little stuff I didn't have to notice. Right. Yeah. That, that reminds me that, that there are several characters, Cass is one of them, but by no means the only character who at various points in the novel has to deal and try to process anger. And, mm. and at one point, uh, one of your characters uh, is uh, thinking about anger versus fear and that anger mm. is easier than fear and that in many cases when there is fear at the heart of a situation it it is easier to get angry and that's probably something applicable in all kinds of scenarios well beyond alcoholism and maybe even helps explain kind of the state of affairs in our country right now that anger is easier (laughs) that that anger is easier than than fear i think that's a such an interesting insight um what I wanted. Well, you know, anger gives you the uh, it gives you the illusion of control. You can feel angry about something and feel like you're doing something. You're you're furious. You're outraged. Fear feels really helpless, mm. and so it's a lot easier. And I think I you know I have to say I think men sort of are not given the room to feel their feelings as much as as women are in our culture today. And I think men do. Uh, tend to sort of turn to anger instead of fear because it's easier and seems more socially acceptable. Right. Um, so, uh, but you know, if you're not honest with yourself about what you're actually feeling, it's very hard to to do something about it. What ultimately a lot of this story is about for Cass is trying to reclaim normalcy or what normal might be or should be. Uh, but yeah. you know, she has to sort of sort sort that out. What that even means, and a lot of different people uh, offer her uh, offer her uh, insights into that. And uh, one of my favorite scenes 
uh, which is not long after she has come to live with Scott, uh, is when she does not want to be in his house because there's a liquor cabinet there, and uh, she does not trust herself to be there. And so she spends uh, the afternoon at the library and then looks at the bulletin board at all of the different things going on. And just, Mm -hmm. you know, for this person who's lived such a ruinous life for so long, you know, for for her to be looking at all of these things that, in a sense, normal people do in normal lives. Right. uh, It's so, so touching. And she ultimately finds herself going to an a cappella concert at the local high school. Right. And what a powerful yeah. and positive experience that is for her. And I think one of the reasons that scene is so moving is because it helps us realize what the rest of us take for granted, that in our mm-hmm. lives that might seem really kind of normal, even mundane, are in fact so beautiful. And the kind of things that a person like Cass drinks in pardon the pun, but uh, drinks in so gratefully. It's a gratitude all of us should feel. That's, that's lovely that you brought that up. You know, she's, she's sitting there and she realizes what watching this concert, this very amateur concert that she's happy. And she doesn't remember the last time she was happy when she wasn't drunk. It's the first time she feels really happy, sober. And that is very powerful to her, too, that she's, you know, and then she says, you know, is, is, is drunk happiness even real? Is that a real happiness? <laughs> um, and she really is struggling to find her normal. She, you know, people keep talking about getting to normal. She doesn't, she's never been in a normal situation, so she doesn't really know what that looks like. And so she's, she's sort of struggling to figure out what her normal is. Um, and, um, you know, we all have to find new normal sometimes. I mean, certainly we're, we're doing that with the, with the state of affairs in our, in our country today, you know, figuring out how to live in this new normal of a a pandemic. Absolutely. At one point, uh, we are given the picture of Cass's situation. I'm the beach and booze is the tide. And she Mm -hmm. is kind of waiting for the tide to come in and, and wondering if she is going to uh, be able to escape this. At another point, uh, we're told that sobriety is a delicate thing, and there are so many things bearing down on her. Uh, mm. um, at, at the end of this experience of, of writing this, this book, uh, what kind of a journey was it for you, particularly when it came to, in a sense, the alcoholics that have been and, re- and remain in your life. Uh, what did you take away from the experience of writing this novel centered on this theme? Well, you know, I, I think it really increased my compassion for people struggling with this disease. I think it really made me feel like, you know, sort of making it my project to, to know what it feels like to be in that skin really helped me to sort of understand it better. And to be more compassionate, you know, you still need to protect yourself, you know, as a, as a person with an alcoholic in your life, things can go awry and you, you need to figure out how you can, you know, be, not be an enabler and, and be, you know, sort of be living your own truth. Um, But it also helped me really, you know, understand more about it. And I was pretty pleased with it. I, I, um, it's been read by a number of alcoholics, 
since then, and um, it, it, uh, the response has been that it that it the book feels pretty authentic, and that was really the most important thing to me. Hmm. Um, I actually, when I had an advanced reader copy, and I, you know, you go to a bookstore and you say, "Here's my advanced reader copy," in case you guys want to order some. And I dropped one off at a bookstore, and the bookseller um, that I usually deal with wasn't there, so I ended up giving it to another woman. And she said, "Oh, great!" I, and I said, "Well, you can read it first if you, you know before you give it to the owner if you want to." And she responded to me in a couple of days and, and emailed me through my website and said, "I didn't tell you, but I've been sober for three years, and I was really anxious about how you were going to portray alcoholics." And she said, "You did it with." authenticity and compassion mm. and i thought that's exactly what i hoped for wow music that's to your ears for. the novel is really catch does. us when we fall published by william morrow the author juliet fay juliet fay i concur i think that's exactly what you've done here this is an important and beautiful book and i'm glad we got to talk about it thank you so much greg thank you so much you just had wonderful questions it was really a delight thank you